0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Miradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. The National Defense Authorization Act is on the floor next week with 1,483 amendments offered and worries that a government shutdown uh, is looming absent an appropriations measure. In Russia, drama continues as Wagner Group CEO Yevgeny Prigozhin uh, is apparently now in St. Petersburg, not Belarus, where he was granted asylum, but he hasn't been seen since his aborted mutiny, nor has the deputy Ukraine war commander, Sergei Surovikin, who knew about the plot but kept quiet. Uh, Washington will give Ukraine cluster munitions as Kiev scores battlefield success and calls for more arms as Russia strikes Ukrainian cities. As NATO's Vilnius summit looms, uh, Turkey and Hungary continue to keep blocking Sweden from joining the alliance. Uh, This as members continue to ponder how to finesse Ukraine's future in the alliance. Months after colliding with a U.S. Reaper aircraft over the Black Sea, Russian jets twice harassed a similar aircraft over Syria, and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is Uh, Now the second senior U.S. official to visit the Chinese capital to warm relations as Beijing cuts off gallium and germanium. Uh, rare earths exports to the United States to punish Washington's drive to curb China's access to semiconductors. Joining us to discuss all this and more are Dr. Patrick Cronin, the Asia Pacific Security Chair at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, Michael Herson, uh, the President of American Defense International, one of Washington's top defense and aerospace lobbying firms, former Pentagon Europe Chief Jim Townsend, who is now with the Center for a New American Security, and the co-host of the Brussels Sprouts uh, podcast, a must for anybody interested in the transatlantic relationship, uh, and somebody who is going to be in Vilnius next week. Uh, So we look forward to his participation next week as well to give us the lowdown from the sidelines. Uh, And former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who counts the Center for Strategic and International Studies as his many affiliations. And I commend everybody to check out uh, the two great pieces he's got in the Hill, uh, one on Sweden joining the alliance, uh, and uh, the other on Uh, unrest, uh, or at least Israel's uh, recent military operation. Michael, uh, welcome back uh, again. I know your fans are going to be very relieved. Um, I was going to, as I joked, you know, 1483 amendments, but who's counting until I realized that actually, you're not just counting, but you've actually had to read uh, uh all of these uh over the last couple of weeks you and i have been talking and <laughs> you've been putting in late hours uh and early mornings uh, uh doing this w- where are we uh on the ndaa and what are the most important amendments that we should be tracking
1: uh you're right there, there's a lot of them and we'll go through some of the highlights in a minute but uh as you mentioned the nda is on the floor next week and uh You know, there's already some shots, you know, getting fired ahead of time as to whether the bill will or will not pass. So Congressman Ro Khanna, who, as you know, is on the Armed Services Committee, he was the only member to vote against the bill uh, out of committee. Um, And he said really because of he feels we're on this march toward a trillion dollar defense budget without any oversight. And he pointed to that 60 minute story we talked about a while ago on uh, price gouging and excessive profits by U.S. defense contractors. And he said he expects at least 50 to 60 Democrats to vote no uh, on the NDAA. But he added that if the Republicans' uh, language targeting Pentagon personnel policies could drive uh, is in there, that it could drive the number up to 80 or more. Uh, now, on the other side, you have Chip Roy, Um, very conservative uh, Republican House member from Texas who has played a leadership role in every major negotiation this year in the House and is rumored to be the next chairman of the House Freedom Caucus, came out saying that he wants tough language in the NDAA, curtailing diversity efforts, the Pentagon's abortion travel policy and the old war authorizations. And he added, he said that the NDAA is going to need to have some serious amendments if you're going to want to get this moving. I'm not just... Uh, I'm not all that confident currently that we're addressing the kinds of things that we need to address. Now, Adam Smith, who's the ranking Democrat on the Armed Services Committee, countered saying the odds of getting a bill on the floor that Chip Roy is going to vote for and any Democrats going to vote for are pretty remote. And, and I think he's right. And there's a very complicated tightrope that leadership uh, is going have to have to have to walk. So you mentioned there's 1,483 amendments filed. Um, 55 of them deal with China. Uh, 46 uh, deal with Russia, 50 uh, with Iran, uh, 45 uh, deal with Ukraine. But let's go talk about some of the highlights because some of these are important and really will have a major uh, impact on the bill. And first is the abortion travel policy. And there is an amendment offered by a large number of conservative House Republicans that would stop the Pentagon's uh, abortion travel policy. This bill will this amendment will get a vote because not all those fourteen hundred eighty three amendments will get a vote. This one will. If this passes, it is likely to sink uh, the NDAA. Um, then uh, we have several amendments filed that, for example, would prohibit Tricare from covering uh, and the Department of Defense from funding uh, sex reassignment uh, surgeries and gender hormone treatments for transgender individuals. Uh, there's amendments uh, filed prohibiting federal funds for training on diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion. Uh, then, you know, Matt Gates filed another one of these bathroom amendments that prohibits a member of uh, certain armed forces from using certain facilities of the Department of Defense and not reserved for the gender indicated on their birth certificate. Um, and then, you know, we've got several amendments targeted at spending. There's the perennial uh, amendment offered by progressives to reduce the NDA top line by $100 billion. I expect that to get a vote. Uh, there is or mul- multiple amendments requiring the DOD to be able to perform and pass an audit. And all these amendments have penalties if they do not do this, Uh, but most of them would reduce the defense budget, some by half a percent, some would restrict them back to the 2022 levels, some would restrict the number of three and four star uh, general billets if they can't do it. Uh, And then, you know, we've talked too about, you know, countering China, and I think there's some amendments that uh, I think help China. For example, uh, you know, we just had the prime minister of India here last week, and there's an amendment offered that is a sense of Congress that India should be designated a country of particular concern uh, in the next international religious uh, freedom reports. I don't think that would help our relationship with India uh, to counter China. There are amendments that would suspend security assistance to Honduras and to Guatemala. Again, uh, this is our backyard that we need to, China's making inroads there. I think we need to be making more friends, not less, in our backyard. Um, You know, we've talked about the AUMFs. I mean, that's one of the things that Chip Roy wants to see uh, withdrawn. Uh, So it's been about three months since the Senate repealed the Iraq uh, war resolutions. And uh, you know, Congressman McCall, who chairs the House Foreign Affairs Committee, says he's wanted to use the Senate's uh, Iraqi AUMF to repeal uh, uh, repeal as a vehicle uh, to rewrite uh, the counterterrorism AUMF. Uh, and he's conducting, he's conducting he has conducted some leadership, uh, some, some listening sessions, because he wants a new AUMF to have a five year expiration date, which would require the White House to seek congressional approval uh, for overseas military operations. However, um, there are several AUMF amendments offered. One to repeal the 2002 uh, and 1991 authorization uh, for military force in Iraq. Uh, There's another one to repeal the 2001 AUMF and uh, there's one to repeal the 1957 AUMF. I didn't even know there was one uh, from the Eisenhower administration, which provided um, broad authorization for military action in the Middle East to protect against armed aggression from any country uh, controlled by international uh, communism.
0: Um, and this was in the wake of the Suez crisis, uh, of course, right? Yes, so exactly. When, when, we, when we did things in a little bit more of a legal manner uh, <laughs> than we've been doing for a while. But, but anyway, in a more reasonable right. manner. Right, yeah, uh, reasonable. Eisenhower we'll get to that. being one of my favorite presidents of all time. Anyway, yes. go ahead.
1: So uh, there's multiple uh, anti-NATO amendments, uh, one of which filed by Marjorie Taylor Greene. She has an amendment that would direct uh, the president to withdraw the U.S. from NATO. Uh, She has an amendment to prohibit Ukraine funding until a diplomatic solution to the war is reached. Uh, She has another amendment to strike all the funding from Ukraine uh, in the NDAA. Another amendment to prohibit uh, the provision of 16s to uh, Ukraine. Uh, She has another amendment to prohibit the provision of long range missiles to Ukraine. And I would expect all her amendments to get votes on the floor, by the way. So these will be very contentious and interesting. Uh, George Santos also want to make his voice heard on the NDAA and offered uh, a multitude of anti-China amendments, uh, imposing sanctions on China in response to China's crimes against the American people, whatever that is. Uh, He also has an amendment uh, condemning the Chinese Communist Party for their Wuhan lab leak, uh, which caused the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, He also uh, has an amendment establishing the opinion of Congress that the Chinese Communist Party is the greatest threat to the freedom of the free world. Uh, My favorite is he has an amendment that prohibits uh, arms sales uh, cybersecurity sales and military sales with the People's Republic of China and the Party. I didn't think we sold weapons to, to China. Um, and you know then there's some that border on the, the really silly. I mean, there's uh, one amendment in particular that uh, limits assistance to Ukraine until the Secretary of Defense certifies the Congress that Ukraine is not providing funding, equipment, training or other support to neo-Nazi militias. Uh, there are uh, amendments that would prohibit the Defense Production Act on uh, pr- pr- using any money on electric vehicles. Uh, EV batteries, EV charging stations, uh, prohibiting any RDT any funding on electric vehicles, electric uh, vehicle chargers, photovoltaic technology, uh, preventing funding for solar panels, uh, on, and here's one that would uh, prohibit the use, prohibit the sale of any goods manufactured, assembled, or imported from China at commissary stores or military exchanges. I mean, that's going to result in a lot of empty shelves. Um, and then there's a lot of amendments that have nothing to do with defense or the NDAA. I mean, reforming and increasing pay for federal wildland firefighters, uh, criminalizing, uh, revenge porn, uh, changing sentencing disparity between crack cocaine and powder cocaine. Uh, so I would anticipate a lot of those ones are not relevant getting ruled out of order, but there is a feeling that the, some of these very difficult and borderline crazy amendments offered by conservative Republicans will be heard because leadership does not want to be seen blocking those amendments. And again, the the Freedom Caucus did have initial three of their members added to the Rules Committee, so I think there's going to be a lot more members considered than we expect.
0: Given all of that, and and that is just an enormous slab, and we could do an individual show on any one of those um, uh, those uh, things. And Dove, I want to get your sense on all of this, on how you think it sort of ends up uh, as well. Before we go, uh, you know, to obviously Russia, NATO, China, and and everything else, how does all of this craziness, the these antics, um shape what's going to be happening to appropriations, right? You, you, you and I have been, uh, you've been talking about this for many, many weeks about the likely, I mean, going back all the way to January, actually, about how we could actually end up in a doomsday scenario. On the one hand, there are a lot of people who are going to say, wait a minute, don't we have a budget deal? This should be easy, but there's nothing easy now, especially on the appropriations process, which is even more politicized than anything we're seeing on appropriation, on authorization, even if the authorization process is um, politicized. What are the where are we going to end up on appropriations and where do you put the risk of a shutdown or, 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 you know, right, a year long continuing resolution, which is what we're saying might be actually a, you know, best case scenario, as insane as that sounds.
1: Yeah, so let me unwrap un- that. So first uh, you mentioned that we have a budget deal and that should make things easier and that's what a lot of people thought, but House Republicans went back on that budget deal before the ink was even dry. Uh, so, and went back to the framework that we've been talking about since early January when I was saying the sky was falling, that is completely unworkable. So, you know, we've talked in the, in the past about how the NDAA is a bipartisan product and that will remains to be seen and what happens next week with these amendments, will it remain a bipartisan product that will it become a partisan product. If it becomes a partisan product, it will not pass. Just like the appropriations bills are now partisan products because they not only cut spending well below the budget deal back to FY22 levels, except for uh, defense, uh, but um, the policy riders on the defense bill uh, are so um, draconian that the Democrats are never going to vote for it. And the Republicans don't have enough votes to pass the defense bill on their own. So, uh, and and earlier this week, uh, Eli Crane, who's a very... A conservative House Republican who had opposed McCarthy for Speaker initially said, "I don't believe for a second that we're going to pass twelve appropriations bills." And then he also went on to say that if McCarthy resorts to using Democrat votes to pass one big spending bill, uh, he and other members of the hard right will use every tool necessary to take it down, just as they paralyzed the House floor in protest of in protest of the debt limit deal. So um, appropriations right now is headed nowhere. I don't even think the House will put any of their appropriations bills on the floor because I don't think they had the votes uh, to pass them. So all eyes will really turn to the Senate to see if they can get their appropriations bills passed and then try and force uh, the House into conference. But, you know, I I said earlier too that by agreeing to go to FY22 levels that the Freedom Caucus really has Republican leadership in a checkmate position because the Senate is not going to agree to pass bills that are below the budget deal. And so if the House compromises with them, does this put McCarthy's uh, speakership Uh, at risk. I think the odds of a shutdown right now are very high uh, at the end of September. Um, And I think that uh, the odds of a long-term CR are very high after that. Um, And that's exactly what the Freedom Caucus wants. I mean, they want this long-term CR with an automatic 1% cut triggered in because that they get those guaranteed spending cuts. Um, And it would be you know, across the board, it would also impact things like the infrastructure bill that were passed in the previous Congress. I mean, it would have devastating impacts across the board, but there is no way that I see them being able to pass 12 individual appropriations bills at this point.
0: Uh, it, it And uh, you, you mentioned the Freedom Caucus. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene booted uh, two weeks ago out of the Freedom uh, Caucus, even if those stories uh, broke Uh uh, or, or actually got some more headlines, I should say, for whatever reason, uh, this week uh, than they did uh, two weeks ago, in part because she said uh, impolita- or, or uh, profanities regarding uh, um, uh, Blur and Boebert. Uh, interesting feud those two have got uh, going on. Uh, yeah, the,
1: well, the, so, so, so let me just comment on that really quick, yeah. right? So I think you're right. I mean, I think that, um, that what, was re- what was reported two weeks ago was the feud between the two of them. Um, There was this rumor about Marjorie Taylor Greene being kicked out, but that was really confirmed uh, yesterday. And, you know, and I think the, uh, the overriding reason for her being kicked out was I don't think it's really the feud between her and Lauren Boebert. It's the fact that she has been working with McCarthy to help him get the speakership and to help him pass this debt deal. These these. That group of folks does not want the wheels of government to work. They don't want it to, to turn. And they are very unhappy with her for working with the leadership. Right. And what those five want to focus on and what we may end up focusing on if we're unable to uh, get appropriations bills done and do the work of the American people are things like the expungement of the impeachment of former President Trump you know, and the impeachments of the FBI director, the uh, DHS uh, uh, Secretary um, uh, Mayorkas, uh, the Attorney General Merrick Garland. And the impeachment of Joe Biden. I mean, these are the right. things that these guys are all talking about, and it will clog up all kinds of time on the floor. and will waste a tremendous amount of time, and does nothing to better the situation for the American people.
0: And and it's all nonsensical political uh, babble jabble, as opposed to anything uh, you know meaningful, uh, which uh, unfortunately we we've we we saw the, the last time around. Uh, with uh, the former president and his uh, transgressions, alas. Um, v- very quickly, uh, Dove. I'm going to come to you in a second, but uh, a quick word from our sponsors. HII sponsors are Global Coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. Sponsors are Strategy Coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications. Sponsors are Command and Control Coverage, and GE Aerospace sponsors are Air and Naval uh, Coverage. Dove, how, do how do you sense all of this gets resolved, and how does DOD end up becoming the hostage uh, in in all of this? Uh, ultimately, because, uh, right, uh, conservative members have always uh, sought to use their leverage any way they can, whether through the Hyde Amendment or anything else, on abortion and any one of these other uh, sort of, um, you know, hot button issues. Uh, On the other hand, you know, the department's argument is, you know, military members will have to get procedures. If it's LASIK, I've got to go someplace where LASIK uh, is possible. This is different from LASIK. Uh, and there are those who are saying, hey, look, maybe we, we just have to get, you know, uh, privately funded uh, sources to help military members uh, kind of do this. How, how, ultimately, how does this get all get worked out? Because this, you know, as Michael said, is a slab of all political trigger issues, all of which are designed to ensnare national defense in it. And at the end of the day, you know, if you're then putting punishment mechanisms in where you're losing budget authority, is just crazy, just like the craziness, you know, to
2: you know restrict Secretary Kendall's travel budget, which is just absurd. I'll try to put some things in a larger context because I'm generally in agreement with Mike. Um, first of all, from the political point of view, the Republicans are not going to want to look like they're blocking. At least most Republicans are not going to want to look like they're blocking pay increases for the military. That they're not gonna wanna do, and that's the authorization. Now, will there be some amendments, some what Mike characterizes as nutty amendments that'll pass? I think there will be some, because historically there've always been some that have been added on to the uh, authorization bill. Uh, I can remember, because I'm so ancient, Pat Schroeder doing that for breast cancer research and other things that now we totally accept, but in those days were considered out of scope for the uh, defense budget, but she got them in there. So I think you'll see some, if only because McCarthy has to mollify his extreme right. The the real question is, to my mind, whether it's gonna be a long-term CR or whether it's gonna be a shutdown. And my guess is the Republicans, even the crazy Republicans, are not gonna wanna shut down, even if their hearts tell them to, because the shutdown's gonna hurt them in the 24 elections. Nobody in the country understands a CR. Nobody understands that it'll mean a cut in the defense budget. Nobody understands that it means no new starts. Most people don't even know what a new start means. So you go with a long-term CR, you accomplish 90% of what you wanted, but you don't get blamed for shutting the government down and shutting defense down. So my guess is that these guys are going to push for a long-term CR. McCarthy's not going to oppose that. Then you're going to have the problem of dealing with the Senate and there's not going to be much resolution. But if there's no resolution, then ultimately the Senate will have a choice between nothing and a longer term CR and they're going to have to cave. That's the way it looks to me right now because of all the craziness that Mike outlined.
0: Uh, Indeed, uh, just an absolutely uh, fascinating uh, fascinating uh, period. All right, um, moving on because we have a, a lot of the rest of the world in order to discuss uh, and both uh, Jim and Patrick are, are being uh, patient. Jim and Patrick, I'm going to come to you next uh, in, in, a, in a moment. Um, we, we, the Prigozhin, uh and Suravikin, uh drama uh, continues. Uh, Alexander Lukashenko uh, sort of told everybody, oh, you know, Purgosian's not here. He's in St. Petersburg, but he's safe. Suravikin has not been seen uh, uh, since uh, you know the dove you mentioned last week, his daughter said, you know, oh, you know, he'd been questioned, but he was free. He might be free. We don't know where he is. There are those who say that both of these guys have tremendous support among the elites, so Putin is not likely to shoot them both, uh, even if uh, we don't know where they are. Does this matter? And where are we? Uh, where is Vladimir Putin? And what's the level of his power now? as we get two or so weeks after uh, the aborted mutiny, Jim? And 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 what what are we seeing on the ground that changes anything about how it is we need to be dealing with this guy?
3: Well, I think it, it does matter. I think the more chaos in Moscow and in the Kremlin, the better in terms of particularly command and control. If Putin is spending a lot of his time trying to track where Progozin is and nervous that he's gathering up another army and trying to find disloyal army officers, if that's what he's spending his time on, that's great. Uh, And if the chain of command is worried about that, too, keeping their head down, trying to uh, avoid the attention that Putin might be uh, giving them if he suspects them of ill doings, then that's great, too. And uh, that impacts morale of the Russian troops on the front lines. And so all of that is Uh, goes in the favor of of Ukraine. They've got their act together. They are continuing to probe and find weak spots. Um, The Russian line no longer has the uh, Progozan 25,000 convicts on the front lines. Uh, They're scattered. Who knows where they are? So so I think to me, as I look at uh, what's happening in the Kremlin and trying to figure out uh, what's going to be the latest move, I, I don't care about the... The specifics. As much as I care about continuing the the, uh, the uncertainty uh, about uh, about Putin, one more point that you mentioned about his about Putin's power. Um, you know, there were, all of us were saying a week or so ago that he was weaker, that he is had, uh, he's losing power, he's he's vulnerable. I still think he is vulnerable, um, but I think he has shown that thus far he's been able to consolidate. Uh, his power. He's been making a lot of moves trying try to show the Russian people that, in fact, he's he's strong. Um, I, they're probably confused more than anything, but uh, I, you know, the, the jury is still out on that, and things could be very different in a month. But the bottom line is, uh, the more chaos there is in the command and control uh, chain of command there dealing with the Russian forces, the better, uh, as long as it doesn't get way out of control. And then all of us uh, in the West are concerned about a uh, Kremlin that is uh, that is really unpredictable, and and Putin who has disappeared, something like that. But right now, at this level of chaos, I can live with it.
0: Uh, in uh, indeed, uh, with, with this level of chaos, I'll I'll, I'll live with it. So I've spoken like a good uh, former uh, policymaker, by the way. Uh, well done. <laughs> Uh, Patrick, you, you know it's it's still in your blood. We could just dust you off, Jim, and we could slide you in there, and you'd do you'd, you'd do a terrific job again. Um, uh, Patrick, um, I want to bring you in because we just had the shangri uh, excuse me, the Shanghai Cooperation, not the shangri the Shanghai Cooperation Council uh, meeting. It was virtual. Uh, uh, Vladimir Putin uh, hosted Xi Jinping and Narendra Modi. Uh, a lot of discussion about partnerships. Um, You know, it was the Russian leader's opportunity, obviously, to portray strength, which he's been uh, trying to do. Did it work? And what are the reverberations across Asia of what they're seeing, right? I mean, was Xi Jinping buying what Vladimir Putin was selling, being one of the shrewder cats in the hen house, not to mix my metaphor?
4: Well, India saw that this was going to be problematic as the host this time of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit, and they decided to go virtual. That virtual meeting made sure that there was real no chemistry between and among um, Russia, China, India in particular. Uh, India seems like the winner out of this because they were able to play both sides, keep up relations with Russia, with China, having just had a really successful state uh, visit to the United States. Russia looks weak uh, in a number of these things I you know yes he gems uh, caveats that uh, we'll have to wait and see what this really means what what does weakness mean in Russia for Putin but nonetheless um, internationally he appears weak and in fact there's a great op-ed in the New York Times by Ryan Hass of uh, Brooking's Institution this week on uh, why China needs to hedge and recalibrate its approach to, to Russia its uh, no limits friendship there. It can't be a bromance based on Chinese interest alone. um, China just cannot afford to see a weakened Russia in the Ukraine war and a weakened Putin after the mutiny attempt, um, uh, weigh down China's ambitions. And therefore uh, it may be that China uh, eventually does become more uh, of a role player on brokering a peace in Ukraine um, but we'll have to wait and see. That's highly speculative still. But the point is that China clearly wants some distance there from, from Russia. And the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which was set up in part for China to project influence and for Russia to block Chinese influence in Central Asia as they compete over that area, You know, China is still the large winner in general in Central Asia.
0: And I want to uh, get uh, back to that uh, in, in uh, just a minute. But Dove I wanted to give you uh, a sense because uh, you've been talking to some folks uh, about what Putin really wants to accomplish and whether or not there was a mutiny or anything else, he's still pushing ahead on it. Give us your kind of your quick take uh, on on where we are and what Vladimir Putin's true war aims are. Right. How do we need to be thinking about this?
2: Well, Putin, uh, what I'm hearing uh, from folks who uh, hear things in Moscow, that Putin is still determined uh, to basically have the northern Black Sea, which means Odessa, not just keeping Crimea. Uh, Mariupol, that whole area. Um, And he's not giving up on that. The other thing that's really important to bear in mind is he's still planning to run again in uh, March of 24, which isn't that far off if you think about it. Right now, given what Patrick just said, if I were Xi Jinping, I'd wait to see if Putin indeed is going to be president in 24. Uh, And so I might hedge my bets to wait and see what happens there. And if he's reelected and if they are able to stop that uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive, and we still don't know how that'll play out because counteroffensives, as uh, Jim has said, as we've all said, uh, they start off slowly. And the question is, will the Ukrainians find that weak spot that will allow them to break through? By March of 24, we'll know all of that. And at that point, China may reconsider just exactly what it wants to do. So uh, from Putin's standpoint, you know, whatever you think of the mutiny, the fact is the mutiny fizzled. Um, I don't think that he will have a purge of the military right now. He may replace uh, uh, both the uh, Minister of Defense, uh, Shoigu, and Gerasimov, the chief of the general staff, after he's reelected. I don't think he's going to do that before then. So uh, the next uh, eight months or so are going to be crucial in seeing what happens both in the war in Ukraine and with respect to Putin himself. Uh, in, indeed.
0: And a quick note to our audience to check out our weekly podcast, Canvas Ships, hosted by our very own Chris Cavas and Chris Cervello and sponsored by HII, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, the downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, uh, and our air power podcast uh, that is co-hosted uh, by our very own J.J. Gertler and uh, me. Uh, Jim, uh, I'm going to go to you. You're going to be in Vilnius uh, for uh, the summit, putting all the drama uh, aside uh, with uh, Russia. We still have no movement on Sweden. The president uh, met with Swedish Prime Minister Ulf uh, 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 where he said he is anxiously awaiting the country's uh, membership. Uh, in the alliance that remains blocked by Ankara and uh, Budapest. Uh, and last week, we also discussed the kind of language that the alliance may finesse uh, as Ukraine pleads uh, for more aid, uh, but also that it feels like it has proven um, the metal to be both an EU and, and a NATO uh, member, going back to that 2008 pledge by President George W. Bush. You know, first where we are on uh, the uh, Sweden issue, uh, but then equally, how does the alliance finesse this? Uh, because we have empowered a nation to stand up, to sacrifice, demonstrate that their worthiness, and at the end of the day, we're still sort of trying to finesse the language uh, on this.
3: Well, first on Sweden, you know, it's uh, what my experience has been with summits and with the Turks is that and and other nations, too. The tactic is you hold out to the very last minute. You hold out You hold out really to the first day of the summit or a ministerial, when there's a lot of pressure to join consensus on an issue or agree to a paragraph in a communiqué. You hold out to the very last minute, and then and then you you finally join consensus, having gotten as much as you can, you know, out of a out of a last minute deal. And so I'm I'm hoping that what we're seeing here, as much as it is just a lot of bad news coming out of of out of Ankara and things happening in Stockholm that have upset the Turks. I'm hoping that we are seeing an end game playing out here. It's still a few days before Vilnius. We've had a very senior level talks going on now. Biden, Erdogan, the Swedish prime minister, um, a lot of hallway conversations going on too with the SecGen and others. I'm hoping that they're going to be able to bring uh, Erdogan to the table at Vilnius where he will let, let Sweden in and be hailed as a great peacemaker. The great man has, you know, can join consensus if he waits till after Vilnius, he will he's going to reap a lot of frustration uh, and uh, hatred by a lot of allies for this tactic. He's not going to get anything more than he would have gotten at Vilnius. So I my my hope is. Uh, that despite the the negativity coming out now that these are this is tactical and that the, that the last minute at Vilnius that you know Erwan will, will will join so on the other part though the finessing language as you know that's what NATO does it's full of uh, drafters of of finesse Jim language. we we
0: Jim we lost you we lost you totally so just uh, restart that as for Ukraine go ahead
3: Um, As for Ukraine, as you know, that's what the alliance does is it finesses language. That's the the membership of the NATO headquarters is full of of drafters who know how to finesse. And they're working this right now, because what you said is exactly right. Certainly, Ukraine has proven that at a minimum, they don't need the membership action plan. Uh, They have proven themselves uh, quite quite. worthy on the battlefield, and they are making a lot of efforts in Kiev, too, to deal with corruption and this type of thing. So so I think I think the struggle is, how do you get beyond that language that's in that communique from 2008, the Bucharest communique that said Ukraine and Georgia will be in NATO? Uh, how can you go beyond that now while they're at war? So they're going to probably uh, finesse language, but they're going to put on the table things uh, that will look good. They're going to have a long-term commitment to Ukraine in terms of training, military support, etc., cetera, um, from the allies and probably from NATO itself as well as an institution, signaling to the uh, Ukraine uh, military and to the Ukrainian people that we are in this for the long haul, and that's the signal to, to the Kremlin too, that it doesn't take NATO membership itself uh, to signal that. They can signal that with long-term um, pro- provision of high-end military equipment. And that high-end military equipment, the U.S. is going to have to put it on the table. And that's attackums and this type of thing. So I think, I think they're going to do language. But I think what's g- important right now is things like the as- long-term assistance. Um, also, they're going to upgrade this their relationship with Ukraine and make them more of a have more of a voice and more of a presence at NATO than they do now. Uh, They're going to make this council. You're going to hear about this. But this this gives them more of a voice, uh, not a vote, but a stronger voice at NATO in terms of of their relationship with NATO and what NATO does. This council will meet and they will they will sit as equals. So there's things like that, too. But so I think a lot of what we're going to see at Vilnius Not just as some language that they're working on now, but also on things they're going to put on the table that will matter, particularly when it comes to the long-term support for Ukraine.
0: Uh, in, in Indeed. Uh, let me uh, take you uh, to um, the uh, rather, uh, I mean, I, I think Erin Burnett of CNN did a terrific job in her series, uh, in her conversation with Volodymyr Zelensky, uh, and the Ukrainian leader expressed the tremendous gratitude to Washington and its allies, uh, in making abundantly clear that the country could not do what it's doing without uh, generous Western support. On the other hand, he also stressed that the offensive was delayed because promised arms had not yet arrived in time. And they also need more in order to be able to do the job. Washington continues to uh, deliberate or dither, depending on uh, how you want to characterize it, about the army tactical missile system, which the Ukrainians could use to great effect as they are using the storm shadow uh, weapon to great effect. Uh, And the president has now decided that he's going to send uh, cluster munitions uh, to the Ukrainians. I I will note the United States has a vast arsenal uh, of uh, both uh, cluster munitions as well as landmines because of the challenge posed by uh, North uh, Korea. And the US weapons uh, have a tendency of uh, self-diffusing and, and a whole bunch of other things that that foreign systems don't. Is, is this cluster munition issue going to be as big of a deal within the alliance as some uh, people are suggesting? And are we going to see Washington move any more quickly on any of these uh, systems uh, the Ukrainians need in the volumes that they need them if we're going to get beyond sort of a frozen front line uh, at the at the end of this year. Well,
3: I I don't think we're going to see Washington uh, get beyond uh, or move more quickly than they've been doing in the past. I just don't think uh, that's going to work. That we're going to see that, and part of it is because. We're having uh, supply chain problems, too. I mean, some of this is dithering. Uh, some of it is meeting after meeting after meeting and hand-wringing. But other problems are that we don't have enough of some of these end items. And that's something we have to keep in mind, whether it's the tacums, uh or whether it is how slow it takes to refill the U.S. arsenal because of supply chain issues and having to having to buy upgraded uh, stingers instead of you know the old stingers that we, in fact we gave to Ukraine. So there are some real reasons why uh, it is we're we're having trouble being timely in terms of providing assistance to Ukraine. But in terms of the dithering and endless meetings and hand wringing we do have control over that. And after Vilnius, I'm hoping that we're going to see some of that dealt with, so that we can move as fast as we can, understanding that we've got supply chain issues that do slow things down. So uh, you know, so that's 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 the you know that's that's in terms of dithering, that's what we're gonna, you know, we're gonna have to work on is what we do have control over, uh, and that's and that's stopping the long meetings. Let's just get on with it. Uh,
0: in in uh, indeed, uh, I can't uh, stress uh, stress that enough. Uh, Patrick. But you, you also you also mentioned. If I'll
3: just jump in, you sure. mentioned the um, cluster. Uh, i i I, feel, I don't think that's going to be such a big deal within the alliance i think it's a big deal among a lot of folks in the us uh, who who have trouble with use of cluster munitions and i and it's a double edged sword you know there's there are issues with that i think our technology is better than those uh, that uh, where you have a lot of duds and 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 it's a, it's a problem to civilians but in terms of the us making the decision to provide cluster munitions at this stage in this offensive I don't think you're going to hear a lot of problems out of
0: the alliance. I would like to believe that's uh, that's true. Some people were pointing out, uh, right, that, you know, Jen Psaki condemned Russian use of I mean, it was because the Russians used them against residential complexes. The Ukrainians are looking at them, looking at these systems for use against uh, military targets as opposed to just sort of indiscriminately uh, shooting them uh, everywhere. Um, We're a little bit uh, compressed on time. Patrick, I'm gonna go to you because uh, there are, uh, I I do wanna get a roundup of regional headlines. Uh, Janet Yellen is the second second cabinet secretary who's gonna be visiting uh, Beijing. you know, also going to be meeting with Xi Jinping. Uh, but uh, just before she landed, China cut off gallium uh, and germanium uh, rare earth exports to America. They were protesting the U.S. decision to curb semiconductor technology and equipment from going to China. Again, I mean, I've asked this question over the last several weeks. You know, what what is it we're trying to accomplish with the Chinese concretely that uh, you know, we're we're saying we're going to hang firm, but we still want to have trade with them. Well, from the Chinese standpoint, it's all interlinked, and they're going to use all arms of national power to get back at us. For you know, whether it's to close a market or, I mean, what what is it reasonably we can hope to accomplish, and at what point does it actually weaken the administration's hand? We heard from Michael the number of amendments uh, the the uh, China uh, Select Committee continues to put uh, pretty firm language out. Uh, generally, on a bipartisan basis, uh, about what they think uh, about the administration's handling of, of China. Even if we think, by and large, it has been it's been great, and Kurt Campbell's done a terrific job. But, you know, what 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 is it? What is it? What is it we're trying to accomplish here?
4: Well, Vago, I think both the Biden administration and Xi Jinping's government want to accomplish uh, at the highest level the same thing. That is, they want to stop this steep slide. Between the two economies that account for nearly 40% of the world's uh, wealth. Um, and uh, but they've got very different goals underneath that rubric. <laughs> and that's where this uh, tit-for-tat economic and trade and technology retaliatory um, actions will continue, unfortunately, but they're trying to slow down the escalation. And so Yes, the high end chip making restrictions that the Biden administration led to threats against micron in China that led to the critical metal metals of gallium and uh, germanium uh, being limited by by China Um, just before Yellen arrived in Beijing in kind of a a direct political coercive uh, action by China to say to the Biden administration directly, Um, we can really make things bad for you in terms of inflation as you go into next year's election. That's really the unwritten, the unspoken line there. Um, And that's probably why you saw President Biden tweet out yesterday that uh, it's time for the United States to get uh, much firmer control over its critical uh, supply chains. Um, meaning we're going to go in this direction, China. You're only only going to hurt yourself by threatening us in this way. So there's a negotiation effectively going on here in the short term over what exactly are the limits of the technology export restrictions that Janet Yellen's trying to say are surgical and limited. That's what she tried to tell Premier Li Chang. Um, this is not open-ended. In fact, it was very interesting to contrast her remarks, um, you know, with the premier about the limits of the competition the day before addressing American business uh, businesses organized by the Chamber of Commerce in Beijing, uh, she took their side and saying, look, we got to stop and work against the administration in Beijing from harassing you and from creating this hostile business environment because I'm on your side, US will always be backing you. So there's a contrast there and that's, she's trying to thread the needle between being tough on China and getting the economic and trade back on track, getting this regular trade. This is still, a, you know, $565 billion of US imports last year to China. Um, you know, the Fortune 500 firms of the United States are getting three times more revenue from China than they do from the UK, France, and Germany combined. We've got more than 300, we've got some 300,000 Chinese students from uh, US universities, um, for instance, uh, a third of all international students. And yet um, the business community in doing business in China uh, is, is actually not profitable. More than half said they lost money last year. And the outlook for the next year, half of them are extremely pessimistic. They think it's going to get worse. Um, China, on the other hand, their economy is weakened here. Um, They desperately need to uh, get some trade and uh, economic activity. And they'd like to have more technology so that they can grow through innovation, not just industrialization. And that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to limit Uh, the extent of US and US allies restricting technology, restricting trade, sanctioning entities. And yet these tit for tat actions are still likely to continue, if only for domestic political uh, impulses and
0: reasons, there have to be actions taken. Give us uh, sort of a quick rundown on broader uh, regional headlines that we should be uh, paying attention to, the most important one of which I think was um, the the rather significant shift, right? So there was the Shanghai uh, Cooperation Organization. I called it Cooperation Council. So I apologize for that. Um, where you know Modi, um, you know, I mean, is in league with uh, with Russia and China. On the other hand, India really broke by siding with the Philippines. Um, in the international uh, court of arbitration uh, issue uh, siding with Manila on, uh, you know, against China's sweeping territorial claims. Talk to us about that shift and how important it is. And then a really quick take on uh, regional headlines before we have to go to Dove uh, and hear about Israel and Iran before we wrap up.
4: Well, it's a significant shift because India has been so uh, uh, resolute in being non-aligned and being neutral on this issue. And here, um, on the nearly seventh anniversary of the arbitration panel ruling that came down in favor of the Philippines against China's claims for the nine dash line. Um, you have India saying, uh, "You know, we're on the side of the international law here in this, in this arbitration panel. Um, a big boost to the Philippines as well, um, because the Philippines obviously is trying to stand up to China in a small way. Um, and China meanwhile is pushing back. What did they do this past week or just in the last two weeks? They use their Coast Guard, again, to nearly halt the resupply of the small Philippine detachment at Second Thomas Shoal. Again, to send a signal to the Philippines, if they're going to play closely with the United States and push back against China's claims, um, China has the ability in the future to halt that resupply and to do more than that, to take Starboard Shoal uh, all over again, to take Thomas, Se- Second Thomas Shoal and to really hurt the Philippines. So there's a a war, a warning going on uh, there between the Philippines and China as well in the South China Sea. The other things we saw, you know, we're seeing, in addition to the big technology competition with China, we're seeing the the Taiwan defense competition intention growing. Um, That's partly because uh, Taiwan is about to undertake the annual live fire major uh, joint exercise that they do every every July Um, and, the Chinese are sending signals, you know, cognitive warfare signaling that uh, this could trigger conflict and that China's growing capabilities. So for instance, the tit for tat between Chinese uh, firms or Chinese uh, studies claiming that they could, with 24 hypersonic missiles, DF-20, DF-26, cripple a U.S. uh, carrier strike group trying to intervene on Taiwan's behalf, Um, A Taiwan think tank just came out this week saying, no, uh, it would only have basically a marginal difference under our simulations where the ships are actually moving. They're not staying still in the water the way the Chinese um, sort of stimulated it. Um, very interesting, and that's part of what's going on here. And that's also uh, emulated at the highest level. Xi Jinping uh, yesterday talking about the need to dare to fight again right. to be prepared for this. So there's this there's a psychological warfare going on, and we saw Chinese fighters cross the median line again this week. We've saw we've seen China talking about a blockade again. So that uh, psychological efforts are going on uh, in the U.S. China, and, and meanwhile we had a U.S. representative uh, Kevin Hearn. Uh, in uh, Taiwan. So that was also maybe uh, the fighters might have been related to that because he was talking about U.S. support for an independent Taiwan, which not even Taiwan uh, you know, calls for at this point and would violate the one China policy. Um, the other big news is, I think, the Vilnius summit in the Indo-Pacific four nations. You're going to have for the second year running all four leaders from Japan, South Korea, Australia, and New Zealand uh, at the NATO summit uh, in Vilnius, this case, And there's uh, going to be progress made on these individually tailored partnership programs among these four countries that will essentially allow the four Asian countries to move much more in alignment with NATO countries on improving uh, the capability of, of developing technology And the interoperability of these defense technologies, including emerging technologies. So it's a a big deal for Japan, in particular, which may be at the, the, you know, the forerunner of these four uh, doing these agreements. Uh, And of course, we've talked about the liaison office, which may or may not happen, but that's still under consideration
0: as part of that deal. Uh, it is going to be uh, very action packed and looking forward to getting everybody's action uh, after action on that because we've all got sources that we can tap uh, and again one of our number is uh, is going to be at the table as 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 always jim well done uh dove i want to uh, turn to you to kind of wrap up the show because uh we've got a lot to discuss and unfortunately not that much time uh to discuss it but israel launched its biggest operation into the west bank in two decades uh, in a coordinated security operation in uh, janine uh, saying it was going to punish military Militants. It declared mission accomplished after a couple of days and killing. Uh, a number of people, all of whom uh, Israel said were militants. uh, And at the end of it, the militants had a big funeral and said, we're going to exact revenge uh, on uh, Israel. Uh, We have the uh, Iran uh, continuing to try to seize uh, tankers. Uh, U.S. Navy destroyer uh, rode to the rescue twice, um, indicating that virtual presence is actual absence, uh, as the phrase uh, goes, right? I mean, you've got a cop on the beat. It has a tendency of... um, uh, saving the day and at the end of the day we also had the russian um you know t- typical sort of bs uh, this time hassling uh, a reaper aircraft kind of give us your sense on on all of this uh as we wrap up this week's show go ahead
2: well a couple of things first uh in terms of uh, nato and all that i would just point out that the nightmare in europe which could uh essentially uh, obviate anything that nato says at vilnius is mr trump um who uh, you know reportedly is cons- being advised to pull out of nato entirely and i think this is something that adds urgency to what ukraine is trying to do try to get it all done before november uh just in case this man does get re-elected on the other hand from a chinese perspective and i i hope patrick doesn't disagree with me here uh the issue is um, trump is more anti-Chinese than Biden. And so that creates a, a major question mark in Beijing as to how far they want to compromise with Biden in case Trump comes back in and then work and then essentially renounces everything that Biden has done. In the Middle East, there are a number of things, as you pointed out. The Janine thing, uh, you said, uh, mission accomplished. Of course, that's a phrase that, uh, unfortunately, Mr. Bush used. And we know what happened there. And it's probably the same thing here. This is only one particular activity. It's nothing more than that. Uh, they'll be revenged and they'll be in more attacks. And, and this goes on and on. I know, oh, by the way, the uh, Secretary General of the UN, Guterres, said that the Israelis overreacted and the Israelis are furious about that. They are, by the way, uh, working with Russia to some extent to get this uh, uh, Elizabeth turkov uh, an Israeli-Russian a journalist who uh, is uh, a, an academic out of Princeton who was kidnapped by uh, an Iranian-backed militia to get her out of Iraq. Now, the problem is, is, is very, very complex. First, Iraq has passed the law that anybody, no matter what their passport is that has a connection with Israel, is subject to the death penalty. That's number one. And number two is apparently she was warned a number of times as was the Israeli government, that she shouldn't go there because she'd gone there multiple times, I think as many as 10. So this is very sticky, but it's interesting that the Russians and Israelis are working together. At the same time, as you pointed out, the Russians are busy buzzing us uh, in the Gulf. and, And it's absolutely right that unless you're there, I remember years ago, the Air Force talked about virtual presence in the Pacific and everybody realized that was nonsense. Uh, It's the same in the Gulf and the problem of course for the Navy in particular is when you're shrinking below 300 ships, how do you avoid virtual presence uh, unless you've got some creative ideas and one of them uh, appears to be using drones in the Arctic because the Navy just doesn't have enough ships to be up there, but having drones will at least give them some kind of capability to see what's going on. So we see the connection between all of these events and what we started out talking about today, namely the defense budget, because the defense budget that's not going to grow and might, might decline complicates everything we've just said in terms of American deterrence of, be, of being there, as you put it, uh, and, of deter- and of basically supporting American
0: interests worldwide. Uh, Everybody, uh, thanks so very much for joining us. It's always an absolute pleasure uh, having you guys on. Already looking forward to next week's uh, conversation uh, after what we all know is going to be a consequential uh, summit. And there'll certainly be a lot of news and there'll be plenty of congressional news uh, to uh, discuss as well. Hope you all have uh, a great weekend. And thanks to all of you for listening and a very special thanks to Bell for their generous sponsorship that makes this program possible. Uh, Please uh, tune in again on Sunday for our our business round table, and we're going to have a regular uh, schedule uh, next week. And I should also have said, I hope each and every single one of you had a great uh, Independence Day holiday. Thanks very much again, and hope everybody has a great day and a great weekend.